You're listening to the Arts in Isolation podcast, brought to you by Asia House. Hello, this is Juan de Lara, and today we have another episode, part of Converging Paths, in partnership with the Baraka Trust and the Agahan Trust for Culture and Altajir Trust. Today's topic is about pearls, and it's a wonderful reflection about how they are associated to the Gulf region, but often not identified as one of the main commodities and trade resources of Bahrain, Kuwait, and many other cities of the region, which are more often associated to oil production. For this discussion, we have today Professor Robert Carter, who is the Professor of Arabian and Middle Eastern Archaeology at UCL London. His main research concerns have been the origin of Gulf towns, and he is also chief researcher of the Origins of Doha and Qatar project. His second major research project is the Shahrizor Prehistory Project, which examines the settlement and complexity in northern Iraq during prehistoric times. And along Professor Carter, we have Saif al-Rashidi, director of the Baraka Trust. I very much look forward to this conversation to discover a little bit more about the pearl industry throughout the world history. Thank you, Juan, and thank you, Rob, for being with us. We're really interested to find out more about the work that you do. Um, you're an archaeologist of the Gulf and the Indian Ocean, and I wondered whether you could tell us in a nutshell what it is you actually do. Uh, well, first of all, thank you, Saif, for inviting me onto this. I'm an archaeologist and also a historian. Uh, most of my work in the past has been on the archaeology of Arabia and the Gulf for the last 15 or so years, I've also been researching the historical pearl fishery of the Gulf uh, in some detail from its very ancient origins all the way up to the mid-20th century AD. My interest in pearls was initially sparked by the discovery of a very old pearl at a site I was working on in Kuwait. Uh, this was a, a, a pearl from the Neolithic period, uh, which was dating to about 5000 BC. So it's in the Stone Age and it was pierced, and it had clearly been used as an item of jewellery. And I wanted to research this find a little bit more, because I knew already that pearls were very important to the history of the region, but didn't know much about the origins of pearl fishing. What I discovered was that uh, pearl fishing began many thousands of years ago, not only in the Gulf, but elsewhere in the world. Uh, but most of the very ancient pearls that we have found Uh, go back to the Neolithic period, as we call it, uh, in the Gulf region. That is from round about 5,500 BC to round about, let's say, 4,000 BC. And they're found in Kuwait, the United Arab Emirates, and in Oman. And the more I looked into these pearls, the more I discovered how important they were in recent centuries. So I had to do a lot of historical research, uh, looking back at not only archaeological finds of pearls around the world, uh, going back as far as possible, but also looking at what the historians said, from mainly from the Roman period onwards, uh, throughout the medieval period and all the way up to the 1950s, really, uh, which is when the industry finally came to an end. So I discovered this huge uh, history going back more than 7,000 years. And I also learned a lot about Uh, why the Gulf is the way it is today. Nearly all of the Gulf towns that, that we're familiar with were founded as pearl fishing towns, mostly in the last three centuries. 
So from the 1700s through to the mid uh, 1800s, these towns were being founded by people who wanted to make their own settlements and their own uh, shakedoms, if you like, based on pearl fishing as the main source of income. Thank you. You studied pearls for over 7,000 years. Can you tell us a bit about the early history of pearls and pearling? What makes the pearl a coveted thing? Well, pearls are very beautiful. And the ancient history, the very ancient archaeological history of pearls, is found on coastal sites, as you might imagine, where they're also doing a great deal of fishing and gathering of shell shells and shellfish to eat. So I think as people learned to use their environment to gather food, and this is before we had uh, any agriculture in the region, as people were learning to fish and to hunt and to gather coastal resources, they naturally discovered pearls in the pearl oysters that they collected and began to value them as a thing of beauty. And you can see that because of the fineness and beauty of the pearl itself as a gemstone. Not every pearl is perfect, uh, but when you find a beautiful pearl with a beautiful luster, a lovely colour and a good shape and a good shine, you know that you found something precious. So they started to use them in jewellery themselves, and I believe they also started to trade them with neighbouring peoples, because at this time, around about 5000 BC, we have evidence for trade happening between southern Iraq and the shores of the Gulf. And so I think people deliberately collected them because of their beauty from right from the beginning. And you also mentioned looking at histories and historians and the Roman times. What do we find when looking at such sources? Yeah, so the earliest written accounts of pearl fishing happen in Roman times, and they mostly concern two areas in the Gulf, referred to by people like Pliny and other famous Roman uh, geographers and historians. Uh, Bahrain seems to be one of the places, uh, which they called Tylos, and there was another place somewhere in the eastern part of the Gulf, either on the Iranian or the Arabian shore, we're not sure which, which they called Stoidus. And they don't say a great deal. They, they say that it was very important and that pearl fishing happened in these places. And in Tylos, uh, it happened every year with a large number of boats. But we don't have a very high level of detail. However, we also know from the same authors that there was a huge hunger for pearls in the Roman Empire. So they were very highly valued, as highly valued as diamonds and everybody wanted to get some pearls. And they got those pearls from the fisheries in the Gulf and from India and Sri Lanka. And we have this in the Roman sources. Wow, it's remarkable to think that even then, trade routes were that well established and that the Gulf and India and Sri Lanka were fed the Roman Empire. Well, th that's right. Um, the trade routes had been uh, joining themselves together for some time. So I mean, we know that pearls were also important before the Roman period because we have archaeological finds from Iraq and Iran and, and uh, Arabia itself. But it seems that the smaller legs of, of the trade routes between, for example, Iraq and India and India and the Red Sea and Egypt and Africa, East Africa was involved as well. These really joined together 
during the Roman period. And it was very international. So in parts of the UAE and Bahrain, when you look in the burials from this period, especially the first two centuries AD, so from about zero to about 200 AD, you find a great number of of Roman artefacts. You find Roman glass and coins and metalwork. And the region was really fully integrated into this international trading network that went all the way from the Mediterranean through to India and included all the neighboring regions in in between. And pearls were part of that. And do we have any memorable objects that survive from the Roman period that use these pearls? Well, we have quite a lot of jewelry, uh, quite small objects, mostly earrings and some necklaces and, and bracelets as well. Most of our information does come from the historical sources because pearls don't survive brilliantly in the archaeological record across thousands of years. They survive well enough under ideal conditions for us to, to have some of them, but many of them disappear. And what you find is nice pieces of jewellery with gaps where the pearls were, but the mineral gemstones survive uh, because a pearl is an organic product. It's grown in a shell and it's relatively soft compared to the other gemstones that they used on jewellery. But we do have quite a lot of of Roman and Greek uh, jewellery from all around the Mediterranean and the Middle East, and a lot of paintings as well, particularly on the the mummies of the Greek-Egyptian Roman uh, aristocracy, and in fact also middle classes buried at Fayum, for example. You get these beautiful mummy portraits, and many of them are wearing pearl earrings and pearl necklaces. Wow, so they were really widespread among people who could afford them, I suppose. Absolutely. Uh, And as time went on and the industry picked up and trade increased, more people could afford them. Uh, But they already they had started making artificial pearls to try and meet the gaps in the market. And one one of the big complaints of of, of some of the Roman authors was that everybody wanted to to wear pearls and even, even common people uh, were starting to try and uh, wear pearls, and, and they didn't like this. They thought this was a sign of decadence. They complained about the fact that there was a big craze for pearls at the time. And did they make the fake ones out of ceramic? Hmm, that's a good question, actually. We're not completely sure. We have a recipe from Alexandria uh, from, I think, the uh, second or third century AD, which describes how to make them. And it's rather complicated. You know, it involves various substances and minerals and in it seems almost like alchemy rather than what we would consider to be a manufacturing process or a science. But they certainly did make ceramics, but they would uh, apply other substances as well to the outside to try and create that luster. And this was a science which was taken actually into later centuries, you know, right through until the 18th or 19th century. People were still experimenting with making good artificial pearls, and they would use all kinds of substances, including fish scales. They would sometimes take the glittery substances from fish scales and apply them to the outsides of ceramics to try and make them look like pearls. But in fact, nothing could really match the beauty of the real things. I, I don't think artificial pearls could have been mistaken for real pearls at close examination. And speaking of the beauty of the real thing, I know that you're a specialist on the Gulf, but you also mentioned India. Were both regions equally important as pearl producing areas or do the pearls from India differ from those from the Gulf? It depends uh, at what time you're talking. Basically, both areas were important producers, but the Gulf was the most reliable producer of the best pearls. 
So the Indian fisheries were quite well known to the Greeks and the Romans and, of course, the Indians themselves. But actually, they could be sporadic. They would sometimes go for three, four, even five, six or seven years without producing any oysters at all. The, the pearl oysters just weren't there. Nobody's really sure why. But on a good year in the area, the shallow waters between India and Sri Lanka in that area, uh, they would get a harvest which could be equal to or even more than the harvest in the Gulf. In the Gulf, even though there were times when the harvest weren't that great and people worried about overfishing, they, it always seemed to bounce back. There was always something there. And there was also, also a belief, which again goes all the way back to Roman times, but is repeated right up to the 20th century, that the best of the pearls reliably came from the Gulf and in particularly from the banks off the north coast of Bahrain. In actual fact, you could get a beautiful pearl from many different places in the world. So it's just a matter of where you get the most uh, beautiful pearls most frequently. But there were fisheries outside India and the Gulf as well. And what makes a pearl beautiful? Has it always been a constant, are there constant parameters that across the world and across history? I, I think so. Tastes do change, but ultimately the most important thing is that it has to have a beautiful shine to it, a luster, and be of a good colour. Uh, that usually means white or sometimes golden, according to some tastes. And that it has to be without blemishes and perfectly round. And the bigger it gets, uh, uh, the, the more valuable it is. On the other hand, there were other shapes which were also very much appreciated. So drop-shaped pearls uh, were very much favoured for pendants and for earrings. And also button-shaped pearls, so you had a flat base on one side, could also be uh, uh, highly valuable because they could be set into, into jewellery um, so that you couldn't see the flat side. The ultimate decider, if you like, is the luster and a good colour and a blemish-free smooth surface. And going to your focus, which is the Gulf, how important was the pearl trade to Gulf economies and when was it at its most important? Well... We have quite big gaps in our historical and our archaeological evidence, but it seems that the industry became important economically sometime around the Roman period or just before, and then continued to remain important all the way up to the mid-20th century. Uh, but the very big peak, when all these people were coming to the Gulf Coast to fish for pearls and founding new towns and new emirates and, and new settlements... Uh, was between the 18th century and the early 20th century. And at that time, we see that an explosive growth of pearl fishing communities and also considerable price rises all around the world. And the big peak was in about 1912. So from the 1890s through to the 1920s, pearl prices tended to increase uh, very rapidly from year to year. And then there might be a big crash or a correction, but... Ultimately, you see a, a huge peak in demand in those decades. And that's when people, some people, were starting to make quite a lot of money. And it's when the economies of nearly all of the Gulf towns were almost entirely dependent on the pearl fishery. Did this pearling trade affect or influence the urbanism and the cities and the settlements of the Gulf? Very much so. Most of the, the Gulf towns... Uh, would not have been there at all uh, if there was no pearl fishing. And you'll see, if you look at the historical maps, but also the map even today, that most of the 
the urban areas of the region are on the coast. And this is not because they you know, relied on, on, on fishing for fish to eat. It's because they were relying on the pearl fishery. They have almost no agricultural land surrounding these towns. There are exceptions. So around Bahrain, around Ras al-Khaimah, and around Qatif in Saudi Arabia, you do get some agricultural land and water supplies which were enough to grow food. And that's actually where you get the oldest settlements in the region. But outside those areas, uh, there's no reason for people to be there unless they can make a living from the sea. And the towns, they seem quite similar in many respects, but also uh, distinctive and unusual and unique in their own way. But there's very much a shared culture and architectural language common to the region, which is that of both the Arabian and the Iranian coast, uh, which is, if you like, typical of a pearl fishing town in the Gulf. Was this an industry dominated by people from the Gulf or were there certain roles where people from other countries or other regions came and took part in the process of pearling? Well, this is very much a, 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 a mobile population with with very different routes in very different parts of the region. So uh, you had the original inhabitants who had been there for centuries, many of them pearl fishers, but not all of them. You had more mobile uh, groups with, if you like, uh, who'd had a more Bedouin lifestyle, uh, who settled in and around these towns. Uh, You had a a big migration coming from inland Arabia, from fairly settled populations who started moving in the 17th and 18th century and, and resettled in great numbers on the Gulf Coast. You also had Arabs and Persians coming from the Persian shore. You had people come from Iraq. You had people coming from Oman. And many of these people came and made permanent homes on the Gulf, uh, on the Gulf Coast. Um, some of them uh, would come seasonally. Uh, and then you had merchant communities from even further afield. Uh, you had a lot of Indian merchants, some of whom settled in, in the Gulf towns. Uh, you had Iranians, you had Armenians, you had Jews, you had Iraqis, uh, you had people from uh, Zanzibar, uh, you had uh, merchants in the Red Sea. And uh, it was if you like, uh, quite a multi-ethnic uh, society uh, which developed its own distinctive uh, Khaliji identity through time. And was the pearl fishing industry, was it mainly for export or was it also to provide wealthy Gulf families with pearls for themselves? Well, the, the markets were mainly external. So... Uh, the wealthy Gulf families and the Sheikh's families certainly did like to have valuable pearls. Uh, but I think in many cases, people were more interested in the money they could make from those pearls rather than keeping them for themselves. So there's surprisingly little pearl jewellery that can be found in the region. There is some, and very beautiful it is. Uh, but uh, the local populations tended to invest their money in gold and silver jewellery rather than pearl jewellery. Because I think the market outside the Gulf was so good, it made sense to sell uh, their harvest or the bulk of their harvest. Um, There was a huge market in India. Uh, There were big markets in all of the regions bordering the Gulf. Uh, And then there was a very big market in the West as well, especially uh, from the 19th century onwards. And is this in the 19th century specifically, what was it that led to this? booming market for pearls? Well, during the 19th century, 
the world was joining up. So uh, you had a lot of growing economies, uh, industrializing areas, growing middle classes with disposable income. And they wanted to imitate the fashions uh, of the wealthy. And one of the things that they chose uh, to spend their money on was pearls because they were very highly valued and they were what the the royalty and the wealthiest people uh, of Europe, the Middle East, uh, um, South Asia and beyond had been wearing for, for centuries. And uh, if you like, the newly developing middle classes wanted to uh, um, fall into, in, into step with that. Um, so uh, rather like Roman times, uh, there was a craze for pearls. And um, it was that much easier to get hold of them and also to provide the trade goods in return uh, because of these globalization processes that were going on in the 19th century. So, for example, the opening of the Suez Canal uh, meant that uh, the, the trade in the whole Western Indian Ocean area, so India and the Gulf and the Red Sea, uh, stepped up a notch or several notches. Um, and overall levels of, if you like, trade and merchant activity and economic activity went up a lot. And the development of the pearl fishery is part of that process. And it's not the only part of that process. You also had intensification of trade in dates uh, and in cloves from East Africa and all kinds of other products and textiles from India. And um, the pearls are part of that, but the most important part in terms of the Gulf societies. And generally in societies where a trade is very dominant, you find that the language has many terms for different types of pearls and different tools. I mean, is that what you find in the Gulf as well? That uh... Uh, Absolutely, absolutely. So partly because of the very ancient history and partly because of the quite multinational uh, uh, nature of the merchant community, uh, there are a huge number of different words for different kinds of pearls. And the ones we know best now are the ones that were used by the Arab merchants uh, towards the end of the industry in the 1940s and 1950s. Uh, but there's very rich vocabularies which also come from Persian and from Hindi or Urdu. Uh, I made a list of all the terms for different kinds of pearls I could find, mainly from the 11th century up to the 20th century. Um, and there's about 400 entries in that. And some of them are repeated, but some of them are only used for a short period of time. And it's very difficult for us to completely understand how they were used. I mean, even the common terms... I'm still trying to work out how they could be used in combination um, because some of them used uh, were used to describe shape. Some of them were used to describe color. Some of them were used to describe quality um, and to try and find out and reconstruct what a pearl merchant from, let's say, 1920 would have called uh, a, a given pearl is actually very, very difficult because it, the, the memories have faded and the social memories uh, have almost gone. We have the words now, but we're not exactly sure how all of them were used. And do we know a lot about the different professions involved in the pearl industry? We do know a surprising amount, actually, because um, from, let's say, the 1600s, so the 17th century, all the way up to the mid-20th, a lot of observers came to the Gulf and were fascinated uh, by the pearling industry and by the complexity and richness uh, of uh, the pearling heritage and of 
uh, merchant uh, practices, if you like, um, that they wrote a lot of it down. So we get quite detailed accounts of how the merchants bidded for pearls, often in secret, with a you know by using secret finger signals. We have quite a lot of information about the, the terms that they used for different kinds of pearls. We have quite a lot of information later on for prices of different kinds of pearls, a lot of information about how pearls were fished, and a lot of information uh, about how the different uh, components of Gulf society relied on pearls um, as divers, as uh, crew members on the boats, um, as merchants, um, and as uh, support industries uh, to, uh, 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 to, to keep these, these pearling towns running. And it was a big business. To, to get a purling boat or a fleet of purling boats out to sea required a huge amount of organization um, and uh, preparation every year. And is it a seasonal thing? It was very much seasonal. Uh, the season lasted for four months uh, and it would begin in early summer uh, and finish in September. And uh, very often the men would be at sea for almost all of those four months. They wouldn't see their families. Um, on the bigger boats, especially, they would stay out to sea for almost the entirety of the season. Uh, usually they would go back for a brief break in the middle, just of a few days. But it would be possible to spend two months without seeing your family while you were pearl diving. Uh, the smaller boats stayed closer to the ports often. Uh, but the distant boats would be serviced by pearl merchants, really, who would come out in their own boats to buy some of the best pearls at sea and trade them for things like water and supplies. And then at the end of the season, uh, most of the pearls would not have been sold at sea. Uh, they would go back to the home ports and there would be a great big frenzy of buying and selling, which would last a few weeks. Uh, usually the pearls from the northern and the central Gulf would be gathered in Bahrain. Um, the other pearls from the eastern or the lower Gulf would end up in uh, Dubai usually. And then they would pretty much all go to Bombay from where they would be redistributed around the world. Oh, really? That's, um, I mean, it's interesting that they went to Bombay, even though many of them ended up in Europe. That's right. Pretty much everything went to Bombay. So Bombay was the main supplier of uh, trade goods, hardware and food for the Gulf, uh, but also took in nearly all the pearls. And not only the Gulf pearls, but the Indian and Sri Lankan pearls, the pearls from Southeast Asia, the pearls from the uh, Pacific region. Uh, and then they would be redistributed. And, and very often you'd get pearls coming from the Gulf, going to Bombay and then making their way back to the Gulf again, uh, because the merchants were always looking for a good bargain, uh, trying to find gaps in the market, uh, exploiting changing market prices. Uh, but the flow was pretty much universally into Bombay and then out to the world. Um, not everything went that way. I mean, some things went directly to Iraq or Iran. And there were some pearls that went to Iran and then up to Central Asia and even uh, Russia. Uh, but the majority uh, were pooled in, in Bombay, and then the best of them uh, would go to the Maharajas, they would go to Paris, they would go to London, they would go to New York, uh, they would go eastwards to China and, uh, and Japan, and um, it was the hub. Um, and it was not the oldest hub, there were older hubs uh, in Western India as well. Before Bombay, there was Surat, and before Surat, there was Goa under the Portuguese. Uh, but there were centuries of history behind uh, the location of the world's biggest pearl market um, in, in the kind of uh, uh, Western Indian uh, uh, coast. 
And what happened to this industry? Well, important is it today? Yeah, you know, the, the the industry suffered a catastrophic collapse uh, in the 20s and 30s and 40s. Uh, it limped on, um, but as soon as there was sufficient uh, alternative employment, uh, mainly in the oil industries and service industries, uh, people took it uh, because in the last the dying decades. Uh, it was always a hard and horrible job, pearl fishing, um, but it became a hard and horrible job where you could make very little money and, in fact, often ended up getting further and further into debt. Um, so the moment, uh, if you like, uh, petrol, petroleum-based economies became viable, uh, pearl fishing died. But actually, that's not what had uh, um, killed it off in the first place. What, what really damaged it uh, was... Uh, the appearance of cultured pearls, uh, because that immediately reduced the price of all pearls around the world um, um, tenfold. Um, in other words, when good cultured pearls were developed in Japan in the early 1920s, the allure and the cachet of natural pearls uh, suffered because suddenly anybody could afford, well, not anybody, but many people could afford to get pearls which looked very, very beautiful, um, but for a fraction of the price um, that they would have had to pay for natural pearls. And you couldn't tell the difference just by looking. So even if you were a merchant or a specialist, you wouldn't be able to tell easily? Not easily at all. Um, some merchants did, and even today, claim that they can tell the difference between a cultured pearl and a natural pearl by looking at it. But ultimately, the only way to be sure was to look inside the pearl because cultivated pearls or cultured pearls have a bead inside them. They have a, a core made from another shell that's put in the middle. Uh, and then the oyster then grows natural layers of pearl shell, nacre, if you like, around the bead. And if you can you know that it's not a natural pearl. So they did that with x-rays and by developing little tiny uh, magnifying devices that could look into the hole drilled into a pearl to see if they could see the bead. And did the Gulf ever produce cultured pearls or did it stop when cultured pearls be began to be developed? So um, after a period of real concern, uh, when cultured pearls first appeared, there was uh, something of a panic and cultured pearls were made completely illegal in the Gulf. You were not allowed to buy or sell them. Uh, this ban is still active in Bahrain but it is not elsewhere. Um, but the only way they could see to deal with this and to maintain confidence in natural gulf pearls was to say that you are not allowed to have any kind of cultivated or cultured pearl in the whole area. Uh, and they set up testing committees and brought in machinery to try and enforce this ban. Um, to this day, if you go to Bahrain, uh, you should only be able to buy natural pearls. If you find that you've bought uh, 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 cultured pearls, then somebody has actually committed a crime. And have your pearls certified there as well as after they've had um, an examination. So there was a big resistance to the idea of making cultured pearls in the Gulf region. However, as time has passed, there have been some attempts. So there have been attempts uh, most recently in Ras al-Khaimah and probably elsewhere to farm cultured pearls. 
on the understanding that because gulf pearls uh, used to be so fine, then pearls that are cultured in the gulf should be of equally high quality. Um, I don't know how successful these have been economically, um, to be honest. Um, I, I think they have problems competing with the price of cultured pearls in Southeast Asia and China. And is there a specific thing that makes golf pearls, golf pearls so fine? Well, the science is surprisingly underdeveloped when it comes to understanding why golf pearls were so numerous and so good. Now, clearly, it's partly a numbers game. They're, the environment in the Gulf is so good for pearl oysters that you get very, very extensive pearl beds. And the Gulf is all, also quite shallow, so it's possible to dive for these oysters uh, just by holding your breath and a sim simple system of weights and haulers. Um, however, there's something else about them uh, which seems to give them a higher quality. Um, and of course, it could be partly genetic. Maybe it's just the kind of oysters that thrive in the Gulf are also good at producing pearls. But people have also tried to explain it because of the underwater springs that you get around Bahrain. So if you like, a, a, a local explanation for the high quality of Bahrain pearls was that uh, the underwater fresh water supplies, which bubbled up around Bahrain, uh, somehow caused the pearls from that area to be higher in quality. Now, we don't have any scientific proof of this, um, but you do get unusual uh, if you like, hydrological features in the seabed uh, around Bahrain and Qatar, which could possibly be something to do uh, with why the pearls are so good. Um, but I wouldn't want to say that as a scientist. Um, and is the pearl still important today internationally? Well, the market for cultured pearls is huge these days, um, but they are relatively affordable. Obviously, some of the very big, the very large pearls of certain colours uh, can be quite expensive, even cultured ones. But the market for natural pearls never really picked up again uh, since the crash uh, in the 30s and 40s. Some people carried on pearl fishing casually in some areas of the world uh, up until at least the 1980s. People still do it uh, as a cottage industry, if you like, around Bahrain, uh, because the local jewelers need a supply of natural pearls, so there is a market for them there. And prices have started going up again. Um, the collectors, particularly collectors of large pearls and historic pearl jewellery, have created a new market uh, which is increasing the price of fine natural pearls. The problem is you have to fish so many oysters and collect uh, so many pearls before you have a decent number of high quality large ones uh, that there has not developed a particularly large market at you know um, in the world for natural pearls and again it's the same reason uh, that this uh, was so catastrophic in the 30s um, the cultured pearl um, cannot be distinguished at first glance from a natural pearl um, so if you can afford to buy a string of huge uh, cultured pearls that look very beautiful, most people would instead of spending tens or hundreds of thousands of, of dollars um, on a natural pearl necklace. So I suppose only people who really want to collect them because they're 
natural and precious would spend the money rather than that, that's correct that's correct so um, to give you an example um, it was said in the early 20th century that they don't think there would be more than one uh, a good chain of highest quality pearls that would come out of the whole of the Gulf fishery every year and this was an industry at that time where pretty much everybody in every coastal town was involved in pearl fishing and sometimes almost 100% of the adult males of these towns would be going out to sea to fish for pearls for four months every year. And they were literally fishing as hard as they could uh, to get natural pearls and were collecting millions upon millions of oysters and probably millions upon millions of pearls of reasonable size, of which only one very high-class necklace could be made. So that gives you an idea of how rare it is to get very, very large and beautiful natural pearls. Of course, there was then a market for lower grade pearls as well, which doesn't really exist anymore. Um, but it does mean that if you want to spend uh, money on large, perfect natural pearls, you have to be prepared to spend a lot of money. You have to be very wealthy. Uh, you have to be able to spend tens or hundreds of thousands of dollars uh, on large pearls if you want to uh, invest in, in that kind of jewellery. Thanks. And you've been studying pearls for 20 years or so, and you're still actively involved in archaeological work in the Gulf. And I was wondering, what subject are you concentrating on now within your field? Well, I, uh, I am now concentrating uh, mostly on pearl fishing, but I have a, a, lot of, a lot of work to write up from the last few years of archaeological field work, which was looking at the Gulf towns. So at the moment, I'm researching uh, the history of pearls and pearl fishing objects, that is to say, merchant equipment and divers equipment in the museum collections, uh, because I'm working on a pearling path in Bahrain, actually, in Muharraq. They have a UNESCO World Heritage Site. Um, so I'm helping them uh, uh, identify objects and create the narratives for various exhibitions along that purling path. Um, but uh, in terms of my archaeological work, I spent time excavating in Doha and in Muharraq as well. And there's a lot to be said about the lives of the pearl fishers and the, uh, the kind of objects that they owned um, and uh, daily life in a pearl fishing town, which will take me I think uh, quite a lot of time to finish writing up uh, because every time you dig an archaeological uh, excavation trench uh, it might take you you know a few weeks to dig the trench and excavate the the structures within it but it'll create months and months or even years and years of work to analyze it properly and write it up so that's what I'm doing uh, as well as working on the pearl fishing history and the pearl fishing objects. Well it sounds fascinating and we hope that that visitors and whether local or international will be able to benefit from your research as the purling path in Bahrain um, continues to take shape and more buildings are restored and people can delve into the history of this really fascinating trade. Well, thank you. I hope so too. So that the purling path in Muharraq is, is, as you say, for, for Bahrainis and also for visitors. I think uh, the people of Muharraq and Bahrain in general have a quite an emotional attachment to their 
pearl fishing past and also to their uh, their, their um, so there's a genuine interest and it's developing all, all the time and increasing in the purling path and in the properties uh, but of course ultimately we also want people to come in from outside uh, to learn from it and to understand how Bahrain the pearls of Bahrain and Maharak were actually part of this much bigger story um, which you know effectively uh, um, connects to the to the world because Bahrain was the main pearling center in the Gulf for, for, for several centuries. Well, thank you, Rob. That's really been fascinating. And I think it's amazing, actually, to think that what you're telling us, that with millions of oysters, you still get one good string of pearls a year. <laughs> it is amazing. And literally, you have to open tens of thousands of oysters to get a decent number of even reasonable quality pearls. Uh, but if you're going for the top end, the really big round ones with, with perfect color and luster, that a kind of millionaire would buy, then, yep, you would only get one of them a year, one of those necklaces a year, apparently. This is what <laughs> I said. Well, thank you. It was really interesting and enjoyable, and I'm sure our listeners will love it. You were listening to the Arts in Isolation podcast, brought to you by Asia House. For more information, please visit our website, asiahousearts.org. <laughs>